0: Yeah, I had only been at it for five years and had only been on a glacier probably three or four times uh, when we skied all the way from Jasper to Lake Louise along the Great Divide. So we used the maps that A.O. Wheeler had made in the 1920s when he was surveying the Alberta, B.C. Boundary. Gaston Rabefa, one of my old heroes from the 60s, a French mountain guide, he said that mountaineering is going safely in dangerous places.
1: tuned in to another episode of the avalanche hour podcast your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community i'm your host for this week dom baker from nelson bc the avalanche hour podcast is proudly presented by veasen avalanche control safety through innovation the goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories knowledge and news amongst people with a curious fascination for avalanches Thanks to Cameron Griffin for producing this episode. Well, it's late March as I record this, and it's definitely feeling like spring in southern BC. This hasn't been the snowiest winter season in BC, and the snowpack in the Kootenays is definitely below average depth. That being said, the theme this year has been quality over quantity, and I know I have had great skiing all season long. It seems like every time we have had a rain or wind event that ruined the skiing it more or less reset right away with another storm. This time around however, we're into a spring diurnal cycle. Melt during the day, refreeze overnight. Gotta time that corn cycle and there's great skiing to be had out there. Well, I got a great conversation lined up for you today with Canada's mountain historian, the one and only Chick Scott. Chick Scott has skied, climbed and guided his way around the world with many notable achievements to his name. Just to name a few, he did the first Jasper to Lake Louise traverse along the Great Divide, as well as the first winter ascents of Mount Assiniboine and Mount Hungabee. He did the first alpine-style ascent of Mount Logan, the tallest mountain in Canada, and was the first Canadian to summit a major Himalayan peak. He has taken this passion for the mountains and combined it with a deep interest in mountain culture history going on to write numerous guidebooks, articles, biographies, and historical accounts of skiing and mountaineering in the Canadian Rockies. I could go on about his exploits, but let's let Chick do the talking. Without any further ado, here is my conversation with the legendary Chick Scott. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm really happy to be joined today by Chick Scott. Uh, Chick Scott has been known as an adventurer. Um, He's done numerous trips uh, that would be a first ascent or first big traverses, Uh, but he's also had a super deep career in guiding, uh, writing guidebooks, uh, mountain historian, really spent a lot of time and passion sharing the the excitement for mountain culture. So really excited to talk to you today, Chick. Thanks for joining me. No, you're welcome. Good to be here. Well, I was wondering, Chick, if you'd give us a bit of your background, where you grew up and how you got into uh, skiing and climbing in the first place. Um, yeah,
0: well, I I was born and grew up in Calgary, so I always had the mountains there on the, the western horizon. Um, I was a golfer when I was young and sort of grew up on a golf course. But I always looked west um, from Calgary there at the mountains. And in 1962, for some reason, I decided I wanted to go do something in the mountains. So I signed up for um, a trip with uh, the Youth Hostel Association and on the may long weekend in 1962 we went to parker ridge um and we stayed at the hilda creek youth hostel and my life changed 100% that weekend um of course we skied um on parker ridge great spring skiing But just the mountains, the wood smoke in the air, the wind, the spring wind sighing in the trees. um, It was magical. And my whole life went
1: from black and white to color. That's an amazing description. It really is a pretty life-changing pastime, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it sounds like you got into big trips pretty quickly because I'm just sort of looking through some of the um, exploits and pursuits that you've gotten off to. If you went ski touring at Parker Ridge in 62 and by, you know, 66, you're putting up the first winter ascent of Mount Hungabee. So how did you get into um, ch- doing some of these bigger trips and uh, some trips that nobody had done before? Um, well, there was lots to be done in those days
0: um lots of new ascents, it just not lots of new things in the Rocky Mountains. Um and I was very lucky I teamed up with some other guys that were my age, names that people would know, like Donnie Gardner and Charlie Locke, and another friend of mine, Jerry Walsh. Um, so I had good companions. And I think we just had we must have had some natural ability. And maybe good sense, um, because we didn't really take any instruction or training. I mean, I didn't take an avalanche snow safety course until 1990. So I'd been ski touring for 28 years before I learned what a facet was or what crystal, um, what uh, centering was. Um, So we, as young guys, we just fell in love with it. We had good common sense. And we got out there. So, um, yeah, I had only been at it for five years and had only been on a glacier probably three or four times uh, when we skied all the way from Jasper to Lake Louise along the Great Divide. It just happened so quickly.
1: That's just amazing. I'm glad you brought that traverse up, actually. I was hoping to ask you about that. I mean, what an incredible route for one thing. and it strikes me that there's so much information available these days for folks that are planning trips of that sort. I mean, you can fly around on Google Earth and FatMap and there's trip reports of people that have come before and you know somewhat accurate uh, glacial condition reports and that sort of thing, but of course you guys wouldn't have had any of that. So, how did you prepare for some of these big ski traverses that you did?
0: Um, well, we studied the maps and we studied the air photos. Um, there were something called aerial photographs so in the 1950s much of canada was flown um, by government air force planes and from the air every kilometer as they flew along or every mile they took a photograph looking straight down Um, so with a simple device a little stereoscope you could put two photographs together and look through this little device and everything popped out in three dimensions. So you could see the whole route like you were up at 20,000 feet looking down. Uh, so those aerial photographs were great. Uh, and we looked at maps. But in 1967, the government had not yet made the NTS maps, the National Topographic Series maps, the one to fifty thousanders, they didn't exist to the Great Divide. So we used the maps that A. O. Wheeler had made in the 1920s when he was surveying the Alberta BC boundary. Um so during those years, over a period of 12 years, he surveyed the whole Alberta BC border from the American border, right up 970 kilometers to the point where the Alberta-BC border leaves the Continental Divide and goes straight north on the 120th meridian. So these maps, although they were very old and they were done by hand, beautiful maps, they were fabulous and they worked just fine. So that's what we put took on the trip was these old maps and uh, and they were just fine. But there was very little information.
1: What a link to history to be using A.O. Wheeler's maps. And then, of course, you went on to do a lot of work with the Alpine Club of Canada, as he did too. So I'd love to visit that in a minute. But um, on the subject of some of these, these trips, I was discussing this conversation with a friend earlier on um, who's a ski guide here in Nelson, Silas Patterson. And we were talking about some of the landscape level changes that you may have observed over your time in the mountains i mean he was he was relaying to me that he did the caribou traverse in 2005 and they were following your trip report and uh more or less following your route and at one point in a whiteout they encountered what was a, a glacial descent for your trip um was 70 or 80 foot ice cliff like a serac for them because the glacial recession had reached such a point that uh, the route was no longer navigable and they were uh, finding their way around in the murk um, and writing they said they were writing a letter to you out loud and as a way to uh, keep morale high and talking about what they were observing and how it was different from what they read from your trip report so i was wondering if you have any observations on things that you've seen change in the in the rockies over your time spent there um, well, yes, I certainly have seen lots of changes with
0: climate change and the recession of the glaciers. One of the places that is most obvious is the route up the Pedo Glacier uh, up onto the Wapta Icefields. It's almost impossible to navigate now. I think I haven't been up there for a few years, but back in 1967, we had hadn't heard anything about climate change, but Um, glacial melt had been going on for 150 years, at least 200 years. The last, um, what's called the mini ice age ended 250, 300 years ago. And since then, glaciers have been receding. Um, but of course, it's speeded up so much recently. Um, yeah, it's a shame. The, the great divide ski traverse, I call the the vanishing or the disappearing adventure because It's not going to be there in a hundred years.
1: There are sections of that that are no longer passable in the original route. Yeah, there are places
0: on the Great Divide Traverse, most notably um, the big uh, Alexander Icefall going up um, onto the Lyells up from the Alexander River. That's 6,000 feet up this huge tumbling glacier. And it's very steep, and it's just all becoming chaotic.
1: Um, Yeah, I don't know whether you can still do it. It is a shame, as you said. So check uh, some of the big traverses that you did, some of the first. I mean, um, first Jasper to Lake Louise traverse. Um, first Rogers Pass to the Bugaboos um, in the 60s and 70s. You know, you're a first Canadian to summit a Himalayan peak and, you know, first Northern Selkirk's Traverse and many more, first Alpine-style ascent to Mount Logan. I was wondering if you'd have a story or a notable moment in in the wild places during those times that really stands out to you still to this day.
0: Oh, hundreds of them. I mean, just fabulous. And I should clarify, we didn't do the first, um, Bugs to Rogers Pass Traverse. We did the second traverse. It was done first in 1958 by a group of American, four Americans. But uh, uh, yeah, I noticed they wrote up a little um, one or two page report in the Canadian Alpine Journal, and I was reading it and said, hmm, "We should do that." But over the years, uh, got all of those different adventures there have just been dozens of fabulous moments i remember a moment in the himalayas i was out by myself in a blizzard uh high on a a real narrow ridge and i was soloing and and i just had this fabulous feeling of of confidence and strength and just being um capable um you know going in the mountains I I don't like being scared and I don't like being on the edge some people do but not me I like to feel in charge and in control and when you're in such a wild exciting and truly dangerous place but you're on top of it you're in control it's a fabulous feeling Gaston Rabefau one of my old heroes from the 60s a french mountain guide he said that mountaineering is going safely in dangerous places
1: that's a great way to put it and something to aspire to of course yeah yeah well i was wondering actually if you would maybe uh, recount what the experience of being in the himalayas in the um seventies was like. I mean, the expedition must have just been an incredible experience of, of people and culture and wild places.
0: Yes, the Himalayas, Nepal in nineteen seventy-three, was much different than it is today. Um very few tourists. From the time we left pokhara to go to Dalai Four, um over two months till the time we came back, we didn't see one European or North American, and we didn't see anything of European uh, manufacture, except perhaps the big steel chains that held the bridge together across the Kali Yandaki. Um, But they might have been made in India. But yeah, it was a different place. Uh, You were a long way from home. There was no way you could communicate with home. Um, I guess there would have been phone connection maybe, but it certainly wasn't accessible to us. So you communicated by telegram. You send a telegram. Um, yeah, we, uh, we had a little trouble getting all of our equipment unloaded off the boat in bombay because we had shipped it across the ocean to bombay Um and we had two of our team members waiting for it there um, but there was a dock worker strike going on in bombay and they couldn't unload the ship and the rest of us were in nepal in Kathmandu and pokhara and we couldn't communicate with them so there was just no way we it, it's amazing. Communications is the big change. You can talk about your polar fleece and your ice tools, but the big changes in mountaineering are communications and weather reports. So um nowadays, as you know, if you're out on a big adventure somewhere, skiing the Great Divide Traverse, you can have a little communication with your wife back at home. But when we set off in 1967, um, we registered out for 35 days. We thought it might take us 35 days. So if we didn't show up at the, the Kicking Horse Pass five weeks later, well, we were somewhere over that 350-kilometer stretch. Um, it was one of the last of the old-style expeditions when you were out there, you were really out there, and another big change has been weather reports, particularly in a place like Patagonia, in the old days when you headed up to climb um cherotori uh, or or fitzroy um you just took your chance with the weather. There really was no way of knowing, but now you wait for your satellite weather report. You know the weather's going to be good the next day. And you go up and climb the mountain. Two big changes.
1: That's a very good point. I was going to ask you about the the changes in gear, but actually your communication and weather report point is well taken. I've definitely received text messages with weather updates via inReach on a long ski traverse and really appreciated it. So it's a different different story altogether for you guys.
0: Yeah, it, it really is. Another thing that's really changed is knowledge of how to do these things and how they're done. So with Himalayan climbing, um, people know the weather and the snow conditions and and how to do things. But, you know, when you look back to uh, the early British adventures on Everest and then even uh, the French on Annapurna, they didn't even know how to get to the mountains. Like, uh, we... We don't realize, but when the French climbed Annapurna in 1950, they spent two or three weeks trying to figure out how to get at Dalagiri, just what valley to go up, how to get to the base of the mountain. And in the end, they wasted over half their time trying to get at Dalagiri. And then they realized when they got up there, it was beyond them. So they turned around went back down to the Caligandaki and up onto Annapurna, and they climbed the mountain in two weeks, just blasted up it. And, and that's why it was so disastrous, why uh, Louis Lachanel and Maurice Herzog got so fat, badly frostbitten.
1: Amazing. Yeah, wow. What, as you say, like just even the, the mapping and everything that we have available to us is, would have saved a lot of that grief. Sure. And then, you know, um, in
0: 1921 on Everest, um, they didn't even know how to get at the mountain, how to get at the North Ridge. And, uh, it was really a Canadian, um, Edward Oliver Wheeler. Um, he, uh, he was there as the surveyor and he, he, um, Made a map of the mountain, but he discovered the route up the East Rombo Glacier and on to the north ridge, so all of this stuff that we take for granted, um like how do you get to the mountain um you know, where's the route up it? What's the weather going to be like? Um We all have it at our fingertips and it really it's just changed the whole nature of the game uh, It really used to be an adventure into the unknown. And a
1: lot of that unknown, of course, is gone now. That's incredible. It's a, a time and a place that we won't see again, I'm sure. Um, switching gears here, uh, thanks for recounting some of those awesome stories in history. You clearly have a, a passion for the history and the experiences and and sharing that with people. And you've been involved in organizing, you know, slideshows and uh, film festivals and that sort of thing. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you got into sharing your obvious love for the the mountains and uh, translating that into putting on of events and organizing things like that for people in the, in the bow Valley?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I always loved uh, the old books, reading the old books. Um, and the old adventure stories, uh, and, uh, um, but I didn't get seriously into it for about 30 years. I spent 30 years primarily doing my own adventures, climbing and skiing, but you reach a point in your career. Most of us do, um, where your interests change a little bit and and maybe it isn't so much fun to get up in the dark at five o'clock in the morning and go out into the cold and uh, you get to be 50 years old and and uh, and one of the things that older people really like is history and i was one of them Um, i had always read the old stories but uh, i really got into the history um, in my fifties, um, with pushing the limits, my, my climbing history book. And, and now I'm just passionate about the old stories. Um, and I'm busier than I've ever been. I'm working on a new book now on the history of the Alpine Club of Canada. Five year project. It's going to take me tens of thousands of hours. Um, I'm busier than I've ever been. And, you know, those old stories are they can be just as much fun as your own stories. And uh, it's just a time in different time in your
1: life and and a different interest. I think it's so important to share those old stories. And I really think that's what this this podcast is all about, because uh, they're legendary to us. But with, say, one or two more generations past, they might be forgotten uh, were they not recorded by somebody such as yourself. So uh, good on you for doing that. And thank you, because I've personally really enjoyed the uh, Pushing the Limits, the story of Canadian mountaineering. And as a fellow history lover, it's it's a a well-worn book in my bookshelf. I'll tell you that. Oh, that's good. That's great. So a question for you. I read somewhere that you suggested the idea for the BAMP Film Festival. Is that true? And uh, can you talk a bit about the early days of that? Because it's a a really uh, legendary festival now. Um, Well, yes, that is true. Um, Back in 19,
0: the winter of 74, 75, so early, early 75. At that time, there was only one mountain film festival in the world, and that was in Trento, In Italy. Um, And I think it started about 1950. But um, that winter of 75, I was living in Banff and um, I was on the executive of the, the local Alpine Club section, the Banff section of the Alpine Club of Canada. And we were having a meeting. There was a group of us there, about half a dozen of us on the executive, and we were brainstorming ideas for what we might do through the club to promote mountaineering in, in the Banff area. And I knew about um the Trento Film Festival, and it just occurred to me that was perfect for Banff. We had the Banff Center with all of its infrastructure and its technical people who who know how to do this sort of stuff. We had this great mountain town full of hotels and, and it's very quiet in the late autumn in Banff and they would like a little bit of business. So I just suggested, um, why don't we hold a film festival? Um, so some of the people in that group, most notably John and Matt ran with the idea. Unfortunately, that summer of nineteen seventy-five, I got very sick and and was in the hospital for a couple of months and and was out of it. And, but uh, John Amat was working at the BAMP Center and was also a keen mountaineer and and he also knew about the Trento Festival. Um, so it was really John Amat, aided by Patsy Murphy, who was at that meeting as well, um, Evelyn Moorhouse who was running the Alpine Club National in those days. And they all pulled it together. And in the autumn of 1976, they had the first film festival. They had booked one of the smaller theaters, the Margaret Greenham Theater, Um, but it wasn't big enough. It only holds 300 people. And, And before they even got started, they had to march everybody down the hall into the big theater in the area carvey that in those days seeded close to a thousand so uh, yeah it just took off with a boom right at the start so it was really john and matt and and patsy and evelyn who who turned it into a reality but yeah i think i might have the distinction of actually coming
1: up with the idea well, it's quite the legacy because it's uh, it's still going strong, and uh, of course now on tour with films all the way across North America.
0: Yes, it is. Yeah,
1: you mentioned the Alpine Club of Canada. I thought it's a good opportunity to talk about the club, and you've been heavily involved for for years, whether it's as a custodian at Huts or on various different committees um, involved in the executive of the Banff section. And eventually you were awarded the President's Award for the ACC for devoted and exceptional service to the club far beyond the call of duty. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the ACC and and, and what it means to you a bit and the, the history of the Alpine Club of Canada. Yes,
0: the Alpine Club of Canada has um, its over 115 years old now and over that time there are literally thousands of devoted volunteers who have kept the club going and of course today we look at the club and we see a big club with all these huts and and um, you know a big budget and lots of employees but you know like any organization, it grew over the years from nothing. They started, they started with an idea. And over the years, uh, um, they put it all together. The great library, they have a fabulous library, one of the best in the world. They have 35 huts. They have 24 sections all across the country. And they have tens of thousands of people who, who, enjoy the mountains, um, meet their mountaineering community, and and experience our great alpine heritage through the Alpine Club of Canada. And, uh, yeah, the Alpine Club has played a huge role in that. And although there's lots of paid employees today at a section level, there are still hundreds of volunteers running those sections all across the country
1: it is an excellent way for people to get introduced to the sport and so so many of the camps and courses that they've run have really helped people uh, find say partners to adventure with or to learn skills under the kind of supervision of of guides it's an, an amazing resource and um, something that people should get involved in because there's some adventures to be had out there so, uh, Chick, you also led some trips for the ACC, and I believe you uh, led a group up Logan, including a, a gentleman who was seventy-one years of age. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that uh, that experience. Um, yes, uh, between
0: nineteen eighty-eight and ninety-two, ninety-three, I led dozens of trips for the Alpine Club, um, and and it was. Because of that contribution, actually, that the club gave me the president's award. That was really what it was for. Uh, but one of the very best trips was uh, going up Mount Logan in 1991. Um, and in the group was Don Forrest from Calgary, very fine climber himself, but he was 71 years old and, and being 77 now, I can tell you being Seventy-one years old is not like being twenty-one years old, and and uh, yeah, and Don made it to the top. Um, fabulous! Uh, I remember going across the summit plateau. Uh, really cold, thirty below. A wind blowing, gray, and here you are at close to twenty thousand feet, and and Don was getting tired. I knew he was. And he was right behind me on the rope, and he was bundled in this big red down jacket. And about every 15 or 20 minutes, I'd stop, and I'd turn around, and I'd say, how are you doing, Don? And out of this hood, this this down jacket would come, I'm okay. Just keep going. And we did. <laughs> um I had to make a funny decision on that trip um, out there in the wind. Uh, I knew Don was getting tired. Um, and if he collapsed, he would probably die really quickly of exposure. And, you know, I just wouldn't be able to do much. Uh, we didn't even have a tent with us or a stove. We wouldn't have been able to carry him. And I just made the decision. He knows his body. He's been mountaineering for 50 years. He knows what he can do. Um, and I couldn't turn around then. He would regret it the rest of his life. So I just decided we'll keep going. Yeah. If he does collapse, he's on the way up. That's when he died. And, and I could go back to his children, to his daughters, uh, Sylvia and Kathy, who I knew quite well and say well he was doing what he wanted to do but he made it they made it back and he made it down the mountain and yeah i think he lived another 12 years he eventually did die on the cross-country ski trail with his skis on he had a heart attack uh, 12 years later at the age of 83 i think
1: unbelievable what a life lived it was I was wondering if we could uh, switch gears, check and talk a bit about some of your writing work, uh, which is extensive, I should add. Um, You've written four uh, magazine articles, various different publications. You've published a number of books. Um, And as I said to you before, we started recording here. I've spent a lot of time poring over your guidebooks over the years, planning trips. Um, Ski Trails of the Canadian Rockies is in its fifth edition now. You've been uh, a huge contributor to... um, people's uh, mountain pastimes over the last number of years so I was wondering if you could talk about how you got into writing and and uh your uh what sort of pushed you down the the guidebook path and that sort of thing um well
0: I I always enjoyed books I always read the climbing books um and I enjoyed mountaineering literature and I I read the real good quality literature the novels um historic novels the tolstoys and the dickens and and all of those books back when i was in my my 20s and my 30s so i've always loved words um but then uh, in 1991 i got to work on ski trails in the canadian rockies um now i had planned of doing ski trails way back in 1975, 76. That's what I was going to do. Um, and, and I even started to work on it that winter of 1975. But as I mentioned before, I got sick that summer. I ended up in the hospital and somebody else wrote the book. I knew it was coming. And, and so another fellow by the name of Rick Canelius actually wrote the first cross country ski guide um ski trails in the Canadian Rockies. But by the end of the 80s, the book was out of print. Um I had done a lot more skiing and was back into it and had recovered. Um so I went to Rick and asked him if he was still interested in the book. And he said no. And Tony Daffern at Rocky Mountain Books went to uh uh the publisher of Ski Trails, Summerthought and they weren't interested either so i teamed up with tony and jill daffern at rocky mountain books and my first real commercial book came out in uh, a christmas 1992 ski trails in the canadian rockies and since then just kept going 1994 was summits and ice fields and then the next year in 95 i got into the big one i got into uh, pushing the limits and that took six years. And it eventually came out in 2000. That was huge. And by then, I was a writer. That's what I did. I still like mountain skiing. Uh, the climbing was pretty well done by then. Um, But uh, I still loved the mountain skiing and going to dots. And, and the books just followed after that, the book on Yamnuska in 2003 uh powder pioneers the ski history 2005 and then the next year the big break for me hans moser died um, very suddenly in a bicycle accident in 2006 and i was at loose ends i didn't know what i was going to do but margaret moser his widow uh, who's an old friend from calgary uh, within 10 days she said chick would you write the biography of of hans so i did and and that was a fabulously interesting project and took me 3 years um and uh, i i sort of consider that my best book i i think i got it right uh, honest but not too honest personal but not too personal and i knew that hans wouldn't have wanted me to embarrass or hurt anybody so I don't think I did so yeah and those people close to hands like Leo Grillmeyer and Franz Dopp and and Philippe de La Salle and of course Margaret I think they all really liked the book so so I consider that one of my best
1: is there a bit of uh, pressure involved with writing a book about a, a friend and somebody that you've known for a lot of years
0: um I don't feel the pressure to be honest I don't feel pressure um it's a great honor to be asked to to write a book like that I know there were half a dozen other people out there in the mountain community who would love to have written Hans's biography but Margaret asked me and so I knew I had uh, had a responsibility to get it right but I knew the story so well um back when i started in the mountains in the early 60s that was before heli skiing had even been uh, um, invented and i went on uh, a trip i actually in 1963 i helped hans and leo carry a wood stove a big full wood stove into the stanley mitchell hut yes we carry they the two of them actually carried a 150-pound main body of this stove into the hut. So that was when I first met Hans, and I had watched his career all those years, uh, and we had become very good friends in later years. And uh, so I knew the story, and I knew the people, and I also knew all the people who were close to him, and they trusted me, so, uh, so I think I got that one right.
1: That's oh, amazing, and you've gone on to tell the stories of uh, many folks in the Banff scene there, with uh, fireside chats at the White Museum, and you know obituaries for folks such as Roy Anderson, and um, yeah, it's an amazing. You've become the mountain historian for that that area.
0: Uh,
1: I seem to have got that uh,
0: that position. It's it's a great position. I love telling the stories. Um, I get lots of good feedback. Uh, lots of people thank me. Uh, the Fireside Chats have been a great success. We're doing one on Thursday, this Thursday with Ted Hart who um, wh- ran the White Museum for 38 years and uh, was the mayor of Banff in the 1990s and he is a historian and he's written a dozen books. So we'll have a great time up there on the stage on Thursday night and and yeah there's twenty twenty 20 fireside chats now and they're all on the White Museum website
1: Chick as you might know this uh, podcast is originally based in the in the states though it's become more of a, a global thing which is amazing and, and shows people's passion for for the sport and so just to our um, listeners not in Canada if you're unfamiliar with the White Museum it's W H uh, Y T E. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. And uh, that's the White family of uh, Brad White, who was a guest on the podcast uh, two years ago. And that's a good lesson if you haven't had a chance. Their website is amazing. Not only do they have the fireside chats, but they also have a wonderful archives. Um, and there's some fantastic old historical photos on there of early mountaineering. I love the old photos of uh, women in hoop skirts and hobnail boots working their way up some pretty serious mountain terrain. Yeah. It was
0: a different era. It's a great story. And that's one of, um, that's one of the things about the mountain adventure, the mountain community is that we really share a history and a legacy and a literature. There's no sport in the world that has a literature as rich as mountaineering um, and polar exploration. Uh, There's just, it's a fabulous, We have a story here in our mountaineering community, and it goes back hundreds of years.
1: Just incredible. I was meaning to ask you, Chick, about uh, in the 60s, you worked on uh, the filming of the Iger Sanction, and you've gone on to take uh, that story uh, as a slideshow around the UK and the US and Canada. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that experience of working with Clint Eastwood on on the Iger Sanction.
0: Uh, yes. Uh, well, working on the Iger Sanction that summer of 1974 was, um, it was an interesting experience. It was certainly different. I wouldn't say it was one of my great experiences because, um, you know, Hollywood is Hollywood and climbing is climbing. Uh, climbing is real, as you know, very real uh, and sometimes can be too real. Uh, but Hollywood. Like all the dead guys in the end, uh, get up off the floor and wipe the ketchup off. And, and, uh, so I wrote an article about it a few years later called fantasy and reality filming the Iger sanction. And yes, it was right there on the Iger where fantasy and reality came together. Um, on, during the filming, actually the second day of shooting. On the Eiger on the North Face, um, one of our climbers, one of our film crew was killed and by a rockfall. And I was standing next to him 10 or 15 minutes before he died. And I can't say I had a premonition because I really wasn't. I just didn't want to be there and they didn't need me. So I, I asked if I could leave. And I did, and it saved my life because 15 minutes later, a big rockfall came down, and Dave Knowles, another one of the guides, he got killed. So Hollywood is, is Hollywood. And in those days, I wasn't much for pop culture. Like, I had never even seen a Clint Eastwood movie. I didn't even know who he was. But I certainly knew who Andrew Heckmeyer was, and those early climbing pioneers on the Eiger and Lachanel and Terre. And I, I knew the, the history of the Eiger was, was my odyssey. It was, it was my history. It was, it was the story that one of the stories that had inspired me. So, uh, to go over there and take part in this silly sort of fantasy, um, was pretty strange. Clint was a good guy. <laughs> he was fine to work with and he, he did his own stunts, just fabulous stunts. He really quite amazing. Um, and the film crew was, was great. And, but, uh, I was a climber and, you know, I never, I'm still not interested in Hollywood. I, I, I prefer reality. I find that reality is much more interesting than any fantasy any books you could write any novels any fiction reality's got it all beat
1: well as they say the truth is stranger than fiction and and much more tangible and uh i would be inclined to agree with you with much more interesting as well um going to the alps to go climbing in those summers um must have just been like uh it's such a, a amazing experience for you to to be obviously so passionate about it and the history of it, and then to go over there and see where a lot of these um, people that you had read about were were carrying on with their various exploits. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about some of those summer climbing adventures that you you had in the Alps. Uh, yes, I climbed in the Alps for five
0: summers. Uh, my first summer was 1968 and then i was back in canada for a couple of summers and then i went over to the alps for 71 2 3 and 4 so i spent 5 years and i loved it um you know being surrounded by that culture like they they live in their mountains we we really don't live in our mountains you know, they have the pastures up there and they still were making cheese and they probably still are. And, uh, and the cows with the cowbells were ringing. Uh, and, and they celebrate climbers and climbing history. It's, it's part of their culture. So I love that. I also love the climbing. Um, most of that time, most of my climbing was done around Chamonix, the just fabulous rock, granite rock. And fabulous ice. Um, climate change, of course, has destroyed the ice climbing, I think, in the Mont Blanc range. But in those days, um, they had these big two and three thousand foot sheets of sixty, seventy 70 degree ice, um, just fabulous alpine ice. Um, so I loved that. Um, the great granite. Um, and I was very blessed. I was very lucky. Um, I hung out in this town in Switzerland called Lausanne and I met a Scottish climber by the name of Dougal Haston, who was one of the world's great climbers at the time. He was right up there, the best in the world. Um, one of the things he had recently climbed was the big south face of Annapurna on the Bonington expedition. So, so he was number one alpine climber in the world. Um, so I worked for him as a guide and I got to guide Mont Blanc and the Matterhorn and all sorts of great climbs and waterfall climbs, er, uh, not waterfall climbs, um, uh, rock climbs, great rock climbs. But, uh, um, yeah, I had a great time. And, and of course it was the seventies. There was a great soundtrack. Um, there was an optimism in the seventies, which, as we all know today, we don't have that optimism anymore at all. There was nothing, we knew nothing about climate change, environmental degradation. And, uh, um, although all of those nuclear weapons were there, somehow I never felt like they were going to be used. Um, there were still sane people running Russia and and the united states so um yeah it was a good time i had lots of fun did lots of climbing hung out with some of the best in the world um got paid next to nothing but it did not matter i had something to eat and i was climbing i had a good time and and, uh, and it, they were good days for me
1: Sounds like a pilgrimage of sorts to the cradle of mountaineering history. It's an incredible spot, Gemini. Yeah, it was. Right on. On the subject of uh, history, actually, uh, you've been awarded many awards over your career, uh, but I thought the one that has the, I think, the coolest appeal to it of all must be the Award for Skiing History Excellence from the International Skiing History Museum in uh, Sun Valley. How cool is that? Uh, that was cool, and Kathy, my wife, and I actually drove
0: down there last uh, last March. Long ways, fourteen hundred kilometers to Sun Valley. So, but freeways. So two full days of driving, and then uh, in each direction. But we had a great time. We skied for a couple of days uh, in Sun Valley. It's an interesting resort. Uh, it was the first. First ski resort in North America in 1936 and the first chairlift in the world was built there. It was built by railway guys because it was built by uh, a railway company. And uh, so we had great fun. We spent a lunch we had a great uh, lunch time with a guy by the name of John Eaves, who is also a Canadian from Montreal. And he, uh, Um, he was a great skier, world freestyle skiing champion, uh, six years, I think during the seventies. And then he, uh, he was James Bond's double in two movies. So we, we met a bunch of interesting people. We were treated so well. Um, yeah, it was a nice break and, and I was really pleased, uh, that they gave me that award.
1: That does sound like a, uh. A really good time and it is a beautiful part of the world um speaking of history then uh as a historian of the canadian rockies i have to ask you what's your kind of favorite story from some of the early mountaineering uh that occurred in the canadian rockies
0: oh favorite to god that's i know i know tens of thousands of stories over the years so it's hard to to pick out uh, well the story of Mount Robson is really interesting um George Kinney and Curly Phillips who thought they climbed it in 1909 and that's a a really complex interesting story um and I think we've pretty well solved it researching pushing the limits and then uh, I like the story of Joe Weiss uh, a skier Swiss skier from Jasper who really started these long ski traverses in 1930. He and four companions from Jasper, they skied all the way from Jasper right to Banff, uh, not along the Continental Divide. They skied the valleys where the highway goes now, but they did it in 15 days. And yeah, I like the story of Joe. Um, You know, there's so many there's been so many interesting stories and interesting people over the years that, uh, and a lot of them, they're just forgotten. Uh, and, uh, so with my books, that's one of the things I really try to do is bring to the fore. Some of these old timers who, who dedicated themselves to the mountains 50 or a hundred years ago. Um, and, uh, and, and they should be remembered too. We tend, unfortunately, just to remember a handful of people, often the ones who climb Mount Everest, but, uh, there's lots of other mountains in the world.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, you've done a great job of, uh, mentioning and um recording some of these stories and as we talked about earlier they will be lost if we don't um i was wondering on that note who were some of your contemporaries that you looked up to when you were doing some of these big trips i noticed in summits and Icefields, you had a section about steve smith and some of the big ski traverses he'd done Uh,
0: yes uh, steve certainly was remarkable in his day um One of the big trips that he and his companions, Bob Saunders, Errol Smith and Mel Hines, the four of them in 1979, they pulled sleds all the way into Mount Logan, climbed the mountain, went all around the mountain and skied back out 49 days, um, unsupported by, and it's the only time since 1925 that Mount Logan was climbed, um, Without using an airplane, um everybody since then has used the airplane, except those guys um lots of other people, of course, I admired Hans uh, and Brian Greenwood, those guys um and my good friend Don Gardner Donny is one of the under celebrated people in the Rockies. There are some of us here um in the local community have tried to get him recognized but he's very modest and very shy and and he won't accept any awards so uh, yeah he just sits there in the background but an amazing amazing person um yeah and now with my my work on the alpine club i'm discovering all those those men and women for the last 115 years who have just dedicated themselves to the mountains and and they will be celebrated in my new
1: book Awesome. I look forward to reading that. The long history of the Alpine Club of Canada. It's amazing. Well, it's been really interesting to talk to you, Chick. I really thank you for taking the time to have a chat. I was wondering if I could ask you one last question about if you have any um, sort of a near miss or like a real learning experience that you've had in the mountains and uh, a story perhaps that you'd be willing to share with us.
0: Uh, Near misses. Well, I did have one maybe my second year of climbing Um me and my friend jerry walsh were going up we were climbing the south ridge of mount edith which is right near banter it's a beautiful spire um, that you can see from just a bit west of bam and we got it was early in the springtime and we got about halfway up the ridge and we decided that it was too hard so we decided to go down, and we were going to repel. So I hammered in a piton, and it sang beautifully as I hammered it in. And in those days, we didn't know about slings, so we just threaded the rope through the eye of the piton. And my friend put the rope between his legs and wrapped it around his body in the old Delpharsitz repel, and he started to lean back. And for some reason I lifted my hand up and put my hand on the rope and ping and the piton popped right out as he leaned back. And I grabbed the rope. I, I was holding the rope and I pulled him in. Um so close. Um he he certainly would have gone. He was over the edge. Um and he would have fallen to his death. He would have taken the rope with him. Um, God knows what I would have done. But it was just instantaneous, just that close. And it didn't happen. So as they say, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. And, uh, and so it was fine. So we hammered the piton in again and really hammered it in. And I went first. And the piton held. but. Over all the years, I haven't really had a lot of close calls. I'm a very conservative climber. Like I said earlier, I don't like being scared. So I have always tried to climb fairly far back from that edge of control. And I've never been much out of control on my climbs and I could have climbed harder things. And I could have had a better career, but I also could very easily have been dead, too. And, you know, I wanted to live to be an old guy. I like the idea of living to be an old guy, and and I am lucky, and, and I've done it.
1: Well, as they say, there's old guides and bold guides, but rarely a combination of the two. So I think your, your approach is definitely one to aspire to. It has worked. On that subject, when we talk about uh, incrementally working way up in your comfort zone and staying back from the limit, you you talked about how you did your first avalanche course in the 90s after skiing for almost 30 years in the backcountry. Can you talk a bit about your approach to assessing the avalanche hazard and uh, making your terrain decisions as you were doing some of these, these big trips at the time?
0: Well, we just used our common sense in the old days and a gut feeling and it worked pretty well. And uh, terrain evaluation, of course, is the key. Just stay away from steep and deep terrain. And, of course, that's what everybody's looking for these days is steep and deep. So, obviously, there's going to be accidents. We just stayed away from steep and deep. You can have a lot of good skiing on 25-degree slopes. Um, and, of course, when we skied those big traverses, um, it was about traveling. It wasn't about skiing. Um uh, for a lot of them, we had cross-country skis on. We actually used cross-country skis. Um, so I've been very conservative over the years. Um, and I've chosen lower-angle terrain. Um, to be honest, I knew, and I still know, and even during my guiding years, if I stand at the top of a big 30-degree slope, to be honest, I just can't say a hundred percent that it's safe. I, I admire the guys who do. And I guess they know because we're not having a lot of, certainly the heli ski industry has reduced the number of accidents, but, um, I just don't know snow stability well enough. And when you get on top of a big slope, 30, 35 degrees, 2000 feet below you, deep snow, I just, I've realized that I don't know enough, um, to, to, to make a, a proper safe decision and how you do it when you have a dozen clients behind you. I can't imagine how you can do it all day and safely. The stress of doing that and the responsibility. I couldn't do it. Yeah, so I admire those guys who lead all that steep heli ski train, but it's something that I never felt I could
1: do. That really is quite the uh, the the profession heli ski guiding. There's nothing like that pace, and um, as much as you try to leave yourself margins for safety, there's there's such operational pressure. Especially if you've got a few groups sharing a helicopter. So yeah, hats off to those guys. In fact, that re- reminds me, a friend of mine who's a heli ski guide asked me to ask you. If there was any of the places that you've gone into the mountains, the numerous adventures that you've had, and you were to go back to one of those places, where would that be?
0: Where would I go back? Now, I can tell you one place that I really enjoyed. Uh, I've skied through it three times on the southern part of the Great Divide Ski Traverse. And I spent a week there once just exploring and ski touring. And that was the fresh fields. I loved the fresh fields. Great ski mountaineering, great ski slopes. You know, and it's easy to get there now. Uh, on three occasions, of course, we skied all the way down from the Columbia Ice Fields, So that's how we got there. But on one occasion, uh, I flew in. You can land right up at the, the Barlow Call. On the, it's right on the edge of the park. You put your pack on and you ski right out into the middle of the ice field and they're all around you. Great skiing. And then on the way out, uh, because the helicopter can't land in the park, you have to ski back up to, to the call, uh, the, the call and then down, um, below the mummeries and the helicopter can pick you up there that was a problem in the old days because of communication and weather and timing with the helicopter but with our modern communication now you can just get there and call the helicopter and tell them that the sky is blue and to come and pick you up so it's a great place and uh, it's probably getting busy but uh, if you're looking for something that's a little farther back that was a great spot
1: I'll have to get myself in there. I was shut down on a trip there once for weather. Um, and I've been into the Campbell ice field a few times, but uh, yet to make it onto that fresh field. So it's remains on the list. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I do really appreciate you taking the time check. I feel like I could keep asking you historical questions for, for days. Um, and I look forward to reading your newest book there, the history of the avalanche uh, club of Canada. Good luck with the writing process. That's no small task. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for this, uh, this opportunity
0: to tell some stories.
1: Fantastic. Well, hopefully we can do it again sometime, and I, I look forward to it. Um, and if anybody is interested in more stories, the Fireside Chats with Chick Scott will be on the White Museum website. We'll have a link in the, in the show notes there. Great. Thank you. Well that was a wonderful conversation with Chick Scott. Thank you Chick for joining me and thank you all for listening. Chick referred to a number of his books and publications. We will have a link in the show notes to Chick Scott's website where you can learn more about these and his other publications. We'll also link to the White Museum of the Canadian Rockies where you can check out Chick's fireside chats with the legends of the Canadian Rockies There's also an awesome collection of videos of interviews that Chick conducted with Canadian mountaineering legends while he researched his book, Pushing the Limits, The Story of Canadian Mountaineering. Many, many of us here in Canada have spent hours poring over the Chick Scott guidebooks, summits and ice fields, and ski trails of the Canadian Rockies. Thank you, Chick, for your amazing contributions to and documentation of Canadian mountain culture. What a legend. This podcast is all about sharing stories, knowledge, and news. So if you have suggestions or questions for future episodes, please contact us. You can do that on our website at theavalanchehour.com, where you can also find all our past episodes. You can also find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, and please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Those five star reviews on Apple Podcasts really help spread the show. If you want to help support the podcast, there is a donate button on theavalanchehour.com. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Head over to MikeT.com and check out some of Mike's work. I'm really digging the new logo for the podcast. Music for this episode was I Lost My Voice by my good buddy Gravy and used with permission from the artist. Thanks Gravy for the tunes. You can hear more of Gravy's tunes and check out some of his soulful backcountry snowboarding in his new video Devil's Punchbowl, musician and snowboarder Garrett Nakamis. This is a great video where Gravy hauls his music gear up to a backcountry cabin and records a video of deep powder, good tunes, and good vibes. There'll be a link in the show notes. This episode was produced by Cameron Griffin. Thanks, Cam. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, keep having fun out there. By yes, my island in.